This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Kludges in legislation and game design. Stonehenge. White Wolf Edition Wars. And the Sack of the Old Summer Palace. We average nine new titles a day. That's over 60 a week. And we've got well over 15,000 RPG titles online right now. Drive through RPG, the one true source for RPGs. The unfamiliar combination of uh, Doritos and Scotch tell us that we are in for something strange as we knock out the wall separating the Gaming Hut, and the Politics Hut, to talk about kludges. Um, Robin, do you have some uh, kickoff remarks in terms of kludges? I'm presuming that you're saying good and bad, or bad and bad. Uh, well, this goes to my long-held theory that uh, you and I can ought to be paid exorbitant funds of money by governments around the world to advise them on creating legislation, because as both of us know, one of the issues with real-world legislation is that it is usually insufficiently play-tested, exploited by power gamers, and that we as game designers who go through multiple rounds of trying to set up rules to render themselves impervious to the most dedicated abusers of rules in the hobby gaming community uh, could no doubt uh, lay easy waste to uh, lobbyists, uh, rentiers, and uh, other exploiters and creators of loopholes. And specifically, I thought of this after reading an article in the Washington Post that we will link to on the blog that interviews a political scientist named Stephen Tellis. And his argument in a book called Kludgeocracy, the American Way of Policy, he argues that policy and legislation, uh, particularly in the U.S., but I would argue by extension all around the world, is to a degree that seems obvious when you talk about it, but is not often talked about, a series of kludges. And he defines a kludge as any uh, policy decision where the legislation, where the solution is considerably more complicated than the problem that it sets out to address, and specifically looks at the way in which bits of legislation in a political process, particularly an American political process with uh, as many veto points as the American process is designed to have, results in something where you build on an existing structure rather than being able to ever start over from scratch and take something, make something that makes sense on its own terms as a functional result, as opposed to something that is the logical outcome of whatever is possible through a political struggle in which all people with different vested interests uh, jockey for position and make compromises so that you tend to, for example, reward the output of think tanks, both on the left and the right, who come up with very clever little small solutions to nudge policy in one direction or another because that occurs during the realm of the possible, but in an ideal world is not necessarily the outcome that you would desire. And that feeds the fact that a lot of these rules, when they come out and are used by real people, turn out to be uh, full of holes and unworkable, just the way that we hope our uh, role-playing uh, rule sets are not unworkable when they hit the uh, 
mass of users. So uh, I'm, I'm with you in terms of we should be paid vast sums of money, certainly. I think, though, that part of what all of this sort of um, kludgeocracy type reform or uh, S.I. Hayakawa, uh, the uh, late great uh, senator from Hawaii, used to have what he called the plain English amendment that he would try to get passed every so often, that all uh, American laws had to be written in plain English. Um, so that, uh, uh, and I think that both of these sorts of the, both of these sorts of arguments are, make perfectly valid points, but they appeal to people who, in their separate ways, are completely divorced from the way that politics pretty much has to get accomplished, at least in a democratic uh, establishment, which is to say, to ivory tower intellectuals and blue uh, collar populists. And so, when you look at the way that you know the legislation as she is actually made. I mean, certainly there are better and worse examples of legislation. I mean, the the uh, Affordable Care Act that uh, Nancy Pelosi famously said that you'd have to pass it to find out what was in it because she couldn't be bothered to read the thing. I mean, that's many, many thousands of pages of legislation. That might be seen as too much of a kludge. Yes, yeah, so, both uh, legislators and game designers have to assume that the players will not read the rules. Right, yes. Um, and, I, and I think that my political and my game design aesthetics align in terms of elegance in both cases, but I think that even the, um, the a shorter and more uh, seemingly transparent uh, law is going to wind up being distorted uh, from sort of an outside reformist possibility or in, influenced in the participatory pluralist democratic notion by various outside groups, and that seems to be kind of an ineradicable uh, you know, condition of actually doing business democratically as opposed to having uh, Robin Laws or uh, Ken Height uh, sort of from on high dictate that uh, dice pools will work like this, uh, the preparedness skill will work like this, and tax policy will work like that. And once you start actually having people who have the right to put uh, their ore in, whether it be uh, one's uh, uh, beloved silver-haired publisher or uh, the great gentleman from the great state of Wyoming, you're going to wind up with something that departs from elegance simply because not everyone is going to agree with you on uh, the even the, the the general thrust, much less the specifics. Uh, taking off my summarizing Stephen Tellis hat and putting on my Robin Laws hat, I actually agree with you that this is a better lens through which to understand uh, legislation and perhaps by metaphorical extension game design. Uh, than a way of changing politics, that ultimately what he is observing is just the way that the system works and the system is imperfect. And, you know, perhaps in a parliamentary system, you have fewer veto points, so you have fewer actors who you have to appease when trying to change something. But that inevitably, yes, things are going to be built on top of other things. And uh, once you combine a whole lot of important rules together, uh, you don't necessarily see how they interact, and that you're going to naturally reach a complexity level that becomes daunting and indesirable in and of itself, but is something that you can't undo. You can't ratchet out of the system once it's there. Uh, the, I guess the benefit to looking at uh, America or other countries as being kludgeocracies is then to try and correct to the maximum extent for what you're trying to do as an actor within the system to get the outcome that you want. That if you know ahead of time and are willing to acknowledge ahead of time that what you're going to get is a kludge, perhaps you can design whatever you're doing either to exploit that or mitigate that depending on 
what your uh, desired outcome is. So, for example, you mentioned the Affordable Care Act. There are a lot of people, particularly on the left, who are arguing that a Canadian or French-style single-payer system would be infinitely preferable, but there's no way to move from the current system of vested interests and the current uh, degree of, of political opposition to just raise everything and start over again. And so that's why for uh, good or for ill, and Americans will get to decide whether it's for good or for ill as it kicks in, that it was built upon the pre-existing system where, you know, everybody, there are all of these profit-taking actors who get a taste at each level of the transaction. And that's just was taken as a realistic base of what could be dealt with as sort of a legacy issue that they had to come to terms with. And in game design, you encounter legacy issues as well, particularly when you are switching from uh, one edition of a game to another. When you're, for example, when I uh, redid uh, HeroQuest as HeroQuest 2 and went back to it after other designers had worked on the uh, an intervening edition and sort of taken it in a direction that didn't really make uh, a lot of sense the way that the core principles of that game were originally designed, I was faced with a lot of legacy questions in that uh, there is a constituency of players who are used to the game being a certain way. And so whenever you decide to make a change, you have to evaluate how many changes uh, can people assimilate and uh, are, is this change worth making even though maybe if you were to start over from scratch and, and design the game from the ground up for an audience that was totally unfamiliar with it, you might make choice A. Choice B might actually be the better functional choice because it respects the legacy assumptions that are built into the playing audience. And again, in, in game design, what we can do is we can present rules that have an elegance of design and a clear set of principles, but once those rules hit the table they're going to be clutched anyway by the players because every playgroup is different and every player is going to say, well, I, I like everything that, uh, that Robin is doing in Ash and Stars, but in our game we need uh, some really strong rules for uh, what happens when uh, alien worms possess you. And so we have to sort of build those up or we have to, you know, sort of hook those on to our pre-existing guy or our character who always likes to get in sword fights and so we have to, take, you know, borrow sword fight rules from somewhere whatever it is, they wind up cludging uh, our games in experience as well. So even if you're capable, as you know, we often are, of starting out with a game that, that can feel completely like itself ab initio, you're still immediately hitting a reservoir of past experience, even if it's not a reservoir of past experience with your game, or you're hitting a uh, issue of, um, I guess, enabling legislation in terms of, of how the game is played. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right that just as ideally political actors will pay attention to how their uh, clauses and subclauses that they're trying to inject into a piece of legislation will actually have an effect in the real world, that the real world of the game occurs at the table for each individual group, and that as you suggest, uh, really everyone playing a role-playing game is creating their own new edition of the game when they sit down to play it. Now, you hope that the groups will respect the legacy issues that you've installed, that they will pay attention to why the rules are there in the first place and understand why the rule is there in the first place. It is helpful then as much as possible to explain why rules are there uh, when you're uh, creating your text for a game. There's a paradox there in that the 
there's always space constraints and that uh, if you are trying to fit all of the rules into uh, whatever number of words that you have to work with, often that's the first bit of stuff that goes by the wayside. But if you possibly can, it helps to create sidebars to explain to people why a rule exists, because uh, gamers are actually quite quick to change the rules before they come to terms with the rules that you've supplied them. And again, that's just part of the real-world impact of how uh, a rule turns into a game experience and gets distorted along the way. Yeah, I mean, the classic example, of course, is the getting money from free parking in Monopoly, which appears nowhere in the rules, but so many people have played it that way that it sort of is passed on by osmosis amongst clouds of Monopoly players, and you could probably, you know, uh, startle uh, a good majority of them by pointing out that that rule is nowhere in the rule set and is just sort of part of the uh, the, the clutched experience of, of injecting liquidity into the game basically to prevent um, uh, monopoly uh, capitalism from driving out players too fast. And that's an ancient example of sort of a game culture, an unwritten set of assumptions surrounding a board game. We're very used to that in role-playing games where uh, you are uh, working with or fighting the sort of cultural legacy of the way that uh, Gary and Dave first started playing D&D. That will still affect people three or four generations of gamers later, even though they don't know that that's happening, uh, or can follow the trail necessarily of decisions that led to those assumptions, so that uh, you're not only dealing with legacies of actual rules as you move, for example, from one edition to another, but uh, legacies of cultural assumption as to how the rules will be used. And again, I think that is an interesting uh, analog to what goes on in the in the political process in that uh, people's cultural assumptions uh, dictate their responses to proposed policies, their assumptions about the way that things have gone in the past, who they are as people, all impact what you can actually succeed in getting through a, a veto-rich political system. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the classic example would be the, the famously unwritten British Constitution that for, you know, in, in some fashion that mystifies, as far as I know, orthodox political scientists, Britain continues to function, despite the fact that, in theory, the prime minister could basically run roughshod over the House of Lords and rule the country like an elected dictator until, you know, his government finally fell. And as we've seen plenty of other places in Europe, you know, his government doesn't have to fall if he can run the place like a dictator. And yet, somehow, Britain, you know, has has continued on being a democracy and being, you know, a relatively successful, healthy democracy. So sometimes culture of play, both politically or at the game table, makes whatever rules or absence of rules you have almost an invalid question. I mean, I know we've all talked to uh, gamers who say, no matter what we sit down to play, it always winds up feeling like champions, or it always winds up feeling like D&D, because that's where all of our muscles have, have, have uh, been built up as, as players for the, you know, for decades before we started playing these new games. Just today I encountered a great example of a British political kludge, which is that uh, due to a law enacted, I think in 1643 or something, I'm just pulling that name, so don't quote me on it, that a British MP cannot resign. That once you're an MP, uh, you are obligated to remain in office for the uh, length of that parliament. And uh, the only way that you can get out of it is by dying, 
or being appointed to another government position. So uh, recently an MP uh, wanted to step down, so they had to appoint him to one of these uh, beautifully colorful uh, uh, sinecure political positions, the, uh, you know, the, the bailiff of H.P. Uh, Sacher or whatever it was, uh, in order that he could step down. And so that's an example of a, a legacy rule where the rule originally, I assume, was put in place so that MPs could not be pressured to step down um, and has persisted in the system. And nobody has bothered to create, uh, you know, a new edition of the rules that got rid of that. That is just now a core assumption that's part of that rule set. And that once they hit the rule, you know, you uh, ran into a, uh, a GM who was enforcing the rule rather literally and insisted that it still be followed. And they had to, you know, come up with what is a classic example of a kludge to solve the problem. You probably do have the date roughly right, because it sounds like it's the sort of thing that would have been pulled during the English Civil War with the long parliament and the, and the notion that uh, we're going to sit here until the king you know, uh, you know, cr comes groveling to us uh, and the rest of that stuff. So, yeah, I mean, the, the, the notion that there's some, uh, rule that, uh, that Gary or Dave made at their table to shut, um, one guy up that is now still, uh, being played out at around D and D tables everywhere is, is kind of an amusing one. And I'm sure that people who've played a lot more D and D than I have their suspicions as to what that rule might be. <laughs> and there's also just, for example, the, principle of caution, right? That you were trying to outsmart, if not the dungeon master, the dungeon environment. And it was very crucial that you not make mistakes. Mm -hmm. And so when people first started adding characterization to their characters, the way that they first started doing it was by have having characters who would do suboptimal things for emotional reasons. And that was the, you know, one of the first schisms in role-playing culture. Uh, you can also uh, look at ways in which uh, the material culture of uh, a game line affects the decisions that you make when you are uh, attempting to enact a sweeping series of reforms, i.e. create a new addition. For example, do you change the stats and therefore render all of the existing supplements uh, irrelevant or, or requiring an update, or do you as much as possible, stick with those stats, even though in an ideal world they might not necessarily be perfect, but they're the books, they're the numbers that are already in a couple of shelves worth of books that you want people to still find useful and perhaps even continue to buy. So that's another example of, you know, the gaming equivalent of the Affordable Care Act, where you've got people out there who are have an investment, in this case, an investment of books on their shelf that you. Uh, disrespect at your peril. Yeah, I, th I think the um, uh, the notion that we could maybe get better legislation if they put out an alpha playtest of it for a year and let everyone sort of um, uh, uh, run their home version before it becomes the official thing. Uh, I think maybe Paizo should be the guys who get brought in on this giant uh, Ken and Robin uh, game contract. Right. And you could run it at the state level, right? You often actually hear that is that, mm -hmm. you know, the, we're going to experiment in the states and give the states freedom to experiment and whoever comes up with a, the best, most efficient uh, way to do X or Y, then, then we'll then export that into uh, all of the other uh, ways that other states approach it. And essentially that is uh, a sort of a real world playtest with uh, real people's money and, and real people looking to uh, benefit or uh, 
perhaps even skim a bit off the top. Yeah, I guess the uh, the only thing that I wanted to, to make sure we got in was the notion that uh, judicial review is the free parking of the Constitution. <laughs> John Marshall uh, invented that out of whole cloth in Marbury versus Madison, which you'd think would have taken a, a degree of... Uh, of self-possession to do in front of the guy who wrote the Constitution to tell him that uh, the Supreme Court had the power to declare laws illegitimate. Uh, but now everyone plays that way, and you can't imagine uh, trying to run the United States without judicial review. And it's because it was sort of, I, I don't want to say it, it organically emerged, because that seems a little Rousseauian, but it certainly, you, you can see that uh, the John Marshall thought he was applying the, the principle of the rules um, when he uh, came up with that game mechanic. It's an early example of house ruling, to be yes. sure. Uh, house ruling by a, by an unstoppable power gamer. Yes, and, and I think probably in, particularly in the early history of D&D, greater scholars of Dungeons & Dragons than we are could probably dig out examples of things that started as house rules and then made it into the, the main body. And that was one of the sort of unrealized expectations of the D20 license, which was that... Uh, different people would take the core D&D rules and basically go off and be Massachusetts and Alabama and experiment with them, and that uh, if somebody came up with a great spell point system, that it would then be reabsorbed into the greater body of D&D. But what happened was a lot of the people who were turning out those D20 books were not bothering to learn the rules before they started adapting them and using them. And so, therefore, there were very few companies other than Wizards of the Coast that built up a sort of reputation where your DM would be willing to have you bring those rules to the table so that uh, very little actually got adopted back into the, the main corpus. Well, the other thing was the structural, and there was never going to be a particularly good way to bring those things back into the corpus. Uh, and a lot of that goes to the fact that uh, the guys who are working for Wizards of the Coast at the time were some of the best, uh, you know, D&D designers in, you know, well, obviously in the field and felt that there was no particular reason that they should necessarily have to keep track of every single book uh, that was cranked out by every other game publisher. And so there was no mechanism by which you could even look around and say, oh, I think Steve Kenson's, uh, you know, uh, witch class is really awesome and I'm going to bring it back into D&D. Even if it was really awesome, there was no... Uh, there was no reward, there was no incentive, and there was no point. And so obviously it didn't happen. And also the the third edition was not the most transparent rules set ever in terms of explaining to you how its math worked and why the decisions were made and what things uh, you should tinker with and which things were, uh, you know, load-supporting beams that you mm. couldn't mess with. Yeah, I, I think that... Uh... I think there is a there is a great deal to be uh, to be thought of in in terms of the organic process, and I think that much like with legislation, the more you know about how it's actually done, the less you're willing to just sort of condemn people who do it right out you know right out the door as uh, you know uh, people who are either uh, malevolent or incompetent. The, a lot of times they're working under pressures and for specific uh, hidden constituencies that have to be placated one or the other. Well, I think we may get to the issue of game players as constituencies uh, in a later segment in this podcast. But uh, I think for now, I think we've summed up the essential point, which is that governments should pay Ken and I a lot of money. Right. And Paizo, if you're listening, we'll cut you in.
Once again, we gather our protractors and our compass roses and journey into the longitudinal and uh, longitudinal dome of the cartography hut. And uh, this time we have a cartography hut special deal for you. Uh, we're going to be talking about Stonehenge. We'll have a map of Stonehenge up on the website that comes from uh, Pro Fantasy Software's Source Maps Temples, Tombs, and Catacombs set. And what that is, it's a really cool uh, selection of electronic maps with different views of uh, famous uh, temples, tombs, and catacombs from history. It's a standalone software product, so you don't need their campaign cartographer software in order to operate it. It has a, a viewer that you can use. But if you do have campaign cartographer, uh, you can then edit the maps and uh, file off the serial numbers and use them in your game. So you can uh, grab this until February 22nd at a mere $10, a quarter of the usual price, uh, for one week after this episode drops. So uh, and now until February 22nd, if you go to profantasy.com, Ken and Robin talk about slash Ken and Robin talk about stuff. That's profantasy.com, Ken and Robin talk about stuff, or go to our website and then uh, click from there. You can get uh, this cool product for uh, 10 bucks. Stonehenge uh, has captured our imaginations. Uh, it is a prehistoric site, uh, ergo since the people who created it or the many people who created it and refurbished it and created new editions of Stonehenge over many thousands of years. No doubt with the um, uh, with the Britain, Britannic tribes standing out there complaining that it was just cludged together and that they'd uh, completely uh, blown off the original mechanics. Yes, the, the edition wars uh, may have been actual wars in that case, for all we know. Um, so uh, we don't know exactly why it was uh, built, but we're starting to get a little bit more of a picture. For example, recent uh, finds of remains uh, on or near the site have revealed that uh, some of the bodies that are buried there came from quite far afield. There was one body that was uh, of a boy who was raised in the Mediterranean, and another uh, was presumably from uh, Germany. So, we now have a sense that whatever Stonehenge was over the many thousands of years that it was built and rebuilt and remained a, a site of, of interest, that people came from quite far away to go there. Uh, it might have been a, a healing site. It might have been, uh, it was almost certainly a burial site. So, uh, Ken, what, are, what comes to mind when you think about Stonehenge? Um, Stonehenge is one, of the, uh, is, is one of the things that I have a sort of a personal uh, love for, because when I was 11 years old, we went to uh, Britain to, uh, on our way to Ireland for a family reunion, and we had our choice of day trips out of London, and my mom said we can either go to Stratford-on-Avon or we can go to Stonehenge. And to me, just hearing the word Stonehenge, you know, wiped every other possible consideration out. So we went there when I was 11, and that was before they had the chain link fence around it. So you could just sort of walk up and, and touch things that were, you know, set up in uh, 3000 BC, which if you grew up in a, in a state that did not have, you know, a stone standing on stone before about 1800, it's uh, kind of impressive. And uh, certainly when you're 11 and when you're me, uh, Stonehenge sort of sort of it it not just makes an impression but it, it it sort of got into my uh into my blood a bit i think that that and uh you know the the close encounters of the third kind there's there's a lot of things that happened to me when i was in the uh, 11 to 12 era that have uh, for good or for ill redounded through my work and stonehenge is certainly one of them when i look at stonehenge uh you know, with a historian's eye i think that 
the, the, the main thing that it tells us is that there was quite obviously a very wealthy material culture in pre-Celtic Britain that because it didn't leave any written goods and because I suspect it didn't build an awful lot of, um, uh, of other monumental architecture besides the megaliths, it winds up getting a little bit of short shrift. And when you talk about people coming there from uh, Germany and the Mediterranean, I suspect that what you have is something along the lines of a uh, of the 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 the, the local uh, center of that particular uh, wealthy uh, culture, and that the people were perhaps coming to get tin out of Cornwall, or they were coming for whatever other. Uh, portable goods Britain was producing at the time, and uh, if they were, you know, wealthy and powerful and important enough that their body should should link uh, the, the the you can't even call them Britons the the, the Albans or whatever they were to um uh, to to their native uh, culture that they would get to be buried in Stonehenge to sort of seal the deal of of these relationships and without buying into this notion that there is a um uh, a Neolithic superculture. Uh, I think you can certainly argue that there is a, a broader Neolithic culture in terms of economic development than uh, we seem to uh, understand because we're still basically uh, responding to the old 1950s uh, ex oriente lux uh, model of prehistory. Uh, could you explain what that period of history is? The, the view of, of, of history that was basically uh, propounded, I guess it, it predates the 50s, but in the 50s they sort of uh, brought it back with a vengeance because uh, the Nazis had made uh, looking at uh, ancient Europe uh, uncool again. Nazis ruin everything. They do. It, it's it's remarkable when you when you look into things the number of things Nazis ruin. Um, they uh, but the but the notion after they had dug up um, Mesopotamia in the mid uh, mid nineteenth was that uh, all of human culture came out of the Fertile Crescent out of Mesopotamia and that if we had any sort of uh, cultural development in Europe, it was brought by guys from uh, the Mediterranean. So if we're if we're smelting copper in Europe, they would have learned it from a guy who learned it from a guy who learned it from a guy in Egypt, as opposed to having sort of sussed out smelting copper themselves. Or if they were growing, you know, uh, barley, the barley would have had to come from Egypt. It couldn't have been barley that they had uh, figured out how to grow on their own. And certainly... There is a, you know, there's plenty of evidence of culture diffusion in these various, uh, in, in these various ruins. I'm not saying that uh, Egypt and Mesopotamia, you know, ex- existed in isolation because that undersells Egypt and Mesopotamia quite a bit. But the the notion that all of civilization comes out of Mesopotamia, ex oriente lux, all light from the east, basically, and the opposite opinion, the Nazi opinion, was ex septentrione lux, which is all light from the north which is um, ridiculous. But I think that when you look at the, at the megalithic culture and you look at what we know now about um, North American Indian tribes and that the, uh, the Northwest Coast tribes had such a huge uh, protein surplus that they literally had to invent methods of destroying their extra wealth to prevent warfare from tearing their uh, society apart, the potlatch ceremony. Um, I think that you can look at a place that would have been having the same sorts of fish catches and the same sorts of protein surpluses as would have happened in the British Isles, certainly in the generally warm period that that uh, the Stonehenge was built in. Well, one thing that people have always done is travel, and one thing they always do when they travel is take their stuff and trade it for other stuff. So it 
shouldn't be surprising to us that even long before there was a written history that people were traveling around and uh, moving to sites that they thought were important for whatever reason, whether they were uh, political sites or religious sites or uh, sources of healing, which of course is not only a religious thing, but a uh, service that would be provided to them in a uh, world where uh, healing was scarce. And that uh, it shouldn't be surprising that you could have all of these small cultures that were not a single uber culture, but nonetheless interacted with one another and interacted with, with one another on a scale that we were or previously not imaginative enough to conceive of. Yeah. And one of the interesting things that I find about prehistory in general is that the more we sort of learn about how um, uh, how pre-Iron uh, Iron Age societies can operate and can alter their, their landscape, if you look at the new research coming out of Brazil about the, the ways that they basically terraformed the Brazilian jungle in the uh, first uh, millennium BC, and that the uh, Brazilian jungle that we see now is second growth jungle that was built over this enormous agricultural uh, establishment set up by basically, you know, stone and copper age tribes, that you really begin to suspect that, you know, uh, quote unquote primitive mankind was able to do an awful lot more in terms of feeding itself and uh, building out, uh, if not, um, you know, formal state structures, but at least more complex than me and my neighbor's structures. Uh, if if only in order to get rid of their huge agricultural surpluses. And to bring it back to Stonehenge, one uh, theme of various uh, elliptonic or crackpot theories about Stonehenge is that, uh, well, people can't possibly have made this, because I can't currently think of how you would lug all of those stones around, although, in fact, uh, archaeologists have determined pretty effectively that there's actually nothing mysterious or unavailable to the uh, Neolithic cultures that would have prevented them from making those. But you get the uh, ancient aliens theory, for example, of, you know, that it's cool and it's old, therefore uh, greys from Arcturus must have built it. Uh, what other elliptonic theories uh, surround Stonehenge? Uh, there is the, uh, what I, I alluded to previously, the Neolithic superculture, the notion that uh, in addition to knowledge of math and astronomy that, that dwarfs ours, that the builders of Stonehenge and the other megaliths had uh, knowledges of acoustic science that let them uh, float the stones around magically, um, which, in fairness, is a, a nutty theory of Stonehenge that goes back to medieval times, where they said that uh, Merlin had built it using devil magic, which is roughly the same thing as acoustic science, not, un not known to us. Uh, there's another terrific uh, theory that I, I think is elliptonic, that argues that King Arthur was the guy who built Stonehenge, but that rather than dating Stonehenge to the 5th century AD, dates King Arthur, therefore, to the 22nd century BC. And then I'm not sure how they explain that he stays, he keeps out of the, out of the public prints until, uh, until uh, 500, but uh, it's, it, it's certainly uh, worth a thought that, uh, that there at Stonehenge, they've got Arthur and Lancelot and Guinevere and, and all the uh, things that are uh, remarkably relevant to 11th century medieval concerns for something that was being done in the in the pre-Bronze Age. Well, obviously, whatever was going on in the pre-Bronze Age was whatever that was, and then it was adapted to fit medieval concerns. Yes, right. That it's a that it's a, a fundamentally um, uh, it's a fundamentally powerful narrative in and of itself that uh, that gets reenacted uh, through uh, by literature, or uh, better yet, through reincarnation. There was an author named Sarah Douglas. I think just died. If she didn't just die, my apologies to Sarah Douglas. But she wrote a uh, sort of a 
not quite a bodice-ripping pagan history of Britain, but let's say a bodice-ripping pagan history of Britain in a series of novels in which the main characters reincarnated uh, back through time, uh, going all the way back to the Trojans uh, who landed in primordial Britain and built Stonehenge and fought giants and did all those other wonderful things. And, and each culture having its own bodice technology. Exactly, right. And, and some of the bodices would have to be um, uh, sawn through with flint knives, I assume. Right. So there would have been the, the bodice of Bodicea? Bodicea would absolutely have had a bodic. I, I think that that's, uh, that's not at all un, unrealistic. Uh, but, the, uh, but, but the notion that, these, uh, that the story of Stonehenge is passed down um, sort of uh, genetically or reincarnatively is, is one that I think is, is pretty darn uh, entertaining. Although in her case, I think it was the, the, uh, the new Troy, uh, the, the, the Maze of Troy, which is a different crazy myth. Although the Maze of Troy, of course, has been connected to megaliths, though not usually with Stonehenge, because even you know with the best will in the world, it's hard to make Stonehenge into a labyrinth, whereas some of the other uh, larger and more... Um, uh, and more uh, ornate uh, complexes like Avery uh, can probably be turned into a labyrinth with less trouble. That's just because you don't know where the trap door is in the yes. middle of the stone circle that leads down into the labyrinth. This is a, a shocking lack of imagination on your part, Ken. <laughs> it's, it, it does indeed shock me. Um, I, I think that the, uh, the this, uh, pattern of concentric circles uh, inside the ditch does mean something, though, that uh, obviously they are attempting to uh, serve as... Uh, focuses for some sort of of telluric energy, like uh, Umberto Eco postulated in uh, Foucault's Pendulum, or that Nigel Neal uh, put into the final equator mass show that the the stone structures exist to broadcast uh, mental energy when it comes time for the aliens to come down and feed on us. And the reason that hippies are drawn to Stonehenge is that aliens eat uh, simple-minded people. During the uh, recent end of the world, when the uh, Mayan calendar date came up, of course, there was a gathering at Stonehenge. People still come from all over to go to Stonehenge, although hopefully they're, they don't die and then get buried near the site. And uh, there was a great photograph of a woman wearing a big rubber unicorn mask, which I guess is what one does at the end of the world. And it made me really want to uh, explore the question through fiction of uh, who is it who shows up at that event and why is it that they are wearing the giant rubber unicorn mask? And, and what does that mean about this person as we then follow her uh, through the rest of her life? And I think that's a, for the moment anyway, a, a mystery as uh, impenetrable as Stonehenge itself. Indeed. Um, the notion that if you, you know the end of the world is coming and it requires a rubber unicorn mask, I think are, I mean, the first one, I, you know, we can, we can all sympathize with, but the rubber unicorn mask, it, it, it raises more questions than it answers. Well, if the end of the world is caused by unicorns and flying saucers, you have a leg up. Right. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin, so let's ask Ken and Robin. Lisa Patel asks Ken and Robin, What's your take on the White Wolf Edition Wars, old versus new, World of Darkness? I thought that, uh, for example, Justin Achille did a really fabulous job with the uh, refit, the new World of Darkness version of Vampire, where if you were to take everything in the vast corpus of Vampire the Masquerade mythology that built up over many years and people love so much, and try to distill it down into a single accessible 
point of access that was uh, simpler. And uh, for example, this is an example of, uh, as we were talking about earlier, of legacy concerns in game design in that uh, if you were to, you know, get a do-over, that that's maybe how you would design the vampire game with fewer factions and clearer distinctions between them. But that what happened was, uh, I think that people, even though over the years the sales of the original World of Darkness uh, were kind of dropping and they needed to do something, that they were the constituency out there was still invested in the more complicated version of that world and that property that was built up over many years and that they formed their emotional attachments to. And people found it difficult to move from what they already knew as complicated and ungainly as it had become to a more sensibly streamlined version of that thing. Now, did you see the, the, the V20, the 20th anniversary World of Dark uh, Vampire that Justin also did? Uh, I did not see that. I, I have not seen that, but my understanding is that what we're seeing now is a return to uh, an idealized version of the original that is moving back to the old in a sort of a... Uh, I, I would compare this to the Kiss takes off its makeup syndrome. So if you are as uh, as hoary as myself, you remember the, the uh, original band Kiss and how they always performed in makeup until some point in the uh, early 90s, they decided that that was old hat. So they started performing without their makeup. And this created a bump of attention for them momentarily. But then everyone particularly getting a look at those guys, decided they would much rather have them back in makeup again. And then once they got back in the makeup again, it was a big deal. They went away long enough for people to miss them. And I think you can make a comparison to this in that people's uh, kind of nostalgic feelings for the uh, original thing have uh, turned out to be the thing that is valuable in the new age of Kickstarter when uh, there's a a new sort of offshoot of White Wolf after their reabsorption and deabsorption from the big computer game company whose name I'm failing to pull. CCP, right? CCP. So that they've taken what people loved away from them long enough to make them want it again in a lavish version that they feel attached to. Sort of a new Coke syndrome, although that's, uh, I think that, that short shrifts a lot of the New World of Darkness. Uh, because New Coke is is a horrible abomination before the Lord, whereas much of the New World of Darkness, like you intimated, was actually fairly clever and interesting. Yeah, so, and, and also the, the kiss analogy also short shrifts uh, New World of Darkness. Yeah, but um, it, is, it is seldom that you have a situation where a, a much-beloved thing uh, unequivocally improves and people still clamor for the old much-beloved thing. I'm, I'm sure people could come with something. And I'm not sure that it was an unequivocal improvement necessarily one way or the other. And certainly in the only way that matters, getting people to buy and play the games, it can't be seen as unequivocal improvement because they didn't in the same numbers. Uh, as you can tell by the fact that uh, they are now um, been spun off into their own little uh, hive and uh, are still, I don't think, back up to uh, the sales numbers, certainly that they were in the glory days of the uh, mid-90s. The... Um, the original World of Darkness and the New World of Darkness both hired me to write for them, so obviously they did something right. Uh, I found writing for the New World of Darkness a little more liberating, merely because I didn't have to read all the backstory, but then I was not one of the people who had gained uh, uh, currency in the world of World of Darkness by reading the backstory. I was 
uh, sort of a, a behind the scenes guy and never really um, involved in it on a on a directorial uh, basis. There was a brief talk at one point about letting me be the line developer for Hunter, uh, but I would have had to move to Atlanta, so I put the kibosh on that plan early on. And I think that the new Hunter the Vigil, for example, in New World of Darkness, is the best iteration of Hunter that has ever come out from that game. Again, I haven't seen uh, Justin's new Hunters Hunted for the new old New World of Darkness, but I uh, suspect that I still like Hunter the Vigil better. Well, I found the, the same thing, and I wrote a little bit for the original line and a little bit for the new line, and that the one of the features of the new line was that it tried to avoid the continuity monster syndrome where there is... Uh, one person in the group who's read everything and read the categorical statements about what vampires can and can't do and the uh, broad lines drawn between this is what mummies do and this is what mummies don't do and they knew all the footnotes and that if that person is uh, the GM they're, or they're shooting or the storyteller in this case they're shooting you down all the time because they know this fact about that or if they're their player they're trumping the uh, the storyteller with their superior knowledge of the setting. And so one of the uh, mistakes that uh, that they rectified in the new version was to make sure that everything remained cloudy and open to interpretation so that the usual rule of, well, whatever you want to do in your group, you can do, was more overtly actuated. But this may paradoxically have been one of the things that people didn't like so much because then their uh, people who bought the most stuff were no longer rewarded not for their system mastery, but for their setting mastery. And again, I think that they may have bought themselves a little bit of trouble in the transition by going out of their way to tell the uh, sort of the old powers of the Camarilla that uh, their, you know, their time had, had passed old man and now there was a new uh, gun in town. Uh, not quite the same degree that uh, Wizards of the Coast went to to alienate players of third edition when they were trying to market fourth but a similar approach, and uh, as anyone who remembers the Hey Netpunks era of uh, White Wolf in its prime knows, not necessarily an unrealistic story to come out of the White Wolf decision makers. I found uh, one of the interesting ironies of the New World of Darkness, the way that they would attempt to reach back to the old World of Darkness for a mythic resonance for things in the New World of Darkness, my favorite example being uh, the New Mage, which had gone to a very great deal of trouble to uh, remove the solipsistic consensus reality uh, sophomore in high school uh, nonsense from the original mage and present a single origin story for all mages that they came out of Atlantis and blah 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 and that's it. And almost the first book out of the line for mage was Secrets of the Ruined Temple which was about uh, magical uh, Lara Crofts going around and uh, examining awesome Atlantean ruins but I was tasked by Bill Bridges to write an introduction that returned Atlantis to the realm of mystery and doubt and gave you a million different ways to understand the present uh, war of Magi and left Atlantis as murky as uh, all the maze, mage cosmologies had been back in the old world of darkness. And I certainly enjoyed the practical joke of, of doing that, even though I was one of the people who had deprecated the original maze, mage cosmogony. Uh, so I, I, I thought that it was an interesting attempt to sort of have your cake and eat it too with the new mage line, and I assume that that's the same sort of thing that was going on every so often in uh, the other lines, as they realized that they needed to appeal to people who had found bits or pieces of the old setting that had, had spoken to them on a mythic level or had built those myths up in their own gameplay to uh, to mean something. 
It's also a phenomenon that you see, for example, when a uh, treasured uh, old IP is rebooted, say, for example, in a television show, so that when they uh, the modern era Doctor Who, by just restarting and introducing Doctor Who and then slowly introducing all the elements of the old Doctor Who mythology, you have a group of uh, older fans, in this case, who are waiting for the first appearance of the Daleks and waiting for the Cybermen to come back and waiting for the, the Master to come back, and that there are all of these elements of the property that are submerged and that you're excited when they return. So that what you could do, if they wanted to be really recondite about it, they could have uh, had the old world of darkness reemerge into the new world of darkness and had, uh, you know, a, a fusion. Um, and you have a similar sort of, I guess, situation with uh, Marvel Comics, where they created the uh, the ultimate line in order to create something that was more accessible to new readers uh, but at the same time, they were kind of s sufficiently off-brand that they really appealed more to long-term readers who wanted a slight variation on the thing that they were already familiar with. And so that comes down to the eternal problem of any ongoing, convoluted, complex IP, which is that uh, people become more jaded as they encounter more and more of it, but at the same time, they still want you to adhere to the essential formulas or to return to the essential formulas so that uh, you're kind of in a bind creatively and that you have to have a real sense of how far you can take it before you alienate new people uh, or whether you're just playing to your existing aging out audience. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I think that, you know, for all the uh, ways that people uh, say that the new Battlestar Galactica went off the rails, it probably is the best example of how to take an old IP and shake the dust of your old fan base off by building something that is compelling on its own terms and doesn't really depend on Commander Adama or Sentons or uh, 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 the little f uh, fuzzy robot dog nonsense to, uh, to, to bring old fans of Battlestar Galactica but really was trying to build a new fan base for something that, uh, in the eyes of the creator, was asking the same sorts of questions and using some of the same sorts of tropes as the original Battlestar, but was uh, being pointed in really a different direction. That It, it was much more a, a show about lifeboat politics and, um, uh, and paranoia than the old show was, which was basically just an excuse to let uh, Richard Dykstra reuse all those models again. And uh, I think we haven't even really touched the whole psychology of edition wars, but I think we've uh, discussed this for about a segment's worth of time, so that's uh, yet another topic we'll have to return to at some future date. Finally, that sound you hear in the background and that uh, flux of subatomic particles is Ken revving up his time machine for another segment that we uh, eponymously call Ken's Time Machine, in which Ken is sent back by the forces of Time Incorporated to uh, rectify or alter some fundamental flaw in the timeline. And uh, Ken, of course, is not a worker of kludges, as it were. He is no respecter of historical legacies. He's willing to alter the time stream. So in this case, when Ken is sent back in time to prevent the sack 
of the Chinese Old Summer Palace. Uh, what is the uh, event that you're trying to prevent, and uh, how do you prevent it? Okay, the uh, the sack of the, preventing the sack of the Old Summer Palace is much like uh, the previous assignment to prevent the burning of Alexandria, in that if I prevent it in 1860, it's just going to happen again during the Boxer Rebellion, and then again during the Chinese Civil War, and then again, according to uh, apparently modern uh, Chinese scholarship, or one assumes not uh, acceptable Chinese scholarship, uh, again during the Cultural Revolution, that uh, the, the place just kept getting sacked. But the first sack, the big sack, the one that, uh, that uh, started them all, if you will, was in 1860 when uh, Lord Elgin was leading a British and French expeditionary force into uh, the Chinese interior uh, to uh, basically enforce the Opium War Treaties on uh, China um, and had sent some people ahead of uh, ahead of his uh, column. So, for context, what were the Opium War treaties? Uh, the Opium Wars, in their in in their basic uh, uh, outline, were the notion by the British that the Chinese would be a fine market for uh, for opium that the British grew in India, so that the British would be able to sell China something that it would want, so that China could give Britain money. Uh, previously, China had being a immense place with uh, not a tremendous uh, need for external trade, didn't value that much in terms of external trade because it had, you know, a, a huge functioning economy uh, inside its own borders, and you combine that with the Chinese xenophobia and uh, parochialism, and they wouldn't engage in trade, and when they would engage in trade, they wouldn't keep to the letter of a contract, they wouldn't hold their treaties, which made it very, very frustrating to Western traders who saw a whole country full of silver and wealth that they couldn't necessarily get into. And like drug dealers everywhere, they just responded with uh, violence. Exactly. And in this particular case, they responded with two spates of violence, the First and Second Opium War. The First Opium War uh, ended with uh, the seizure of Hong Kong and with the basically the, um, the enforcement of treaties allowing certain ports in China to be open to Western trade. And when China did not honor those treaties for perfectly legitimate reasons, uh, Britain launched the Second War, which was not any more about opium, but was more about uh, keeping those treaties in place so that British uh, trade with China could continue. The, the Second Opium War, uh, as did the First Opium War, uh, proved that a small force of Europeans could defeat pretty much any sized Chinese army that could be brought against it, uh, the Chinese army having basically uh, stultified in the late 18th century in terms of military technology and uh, was, at that time, the Manchu uh, Empire was in its uh, one of its sclerotic phases, and there was a limit to the amount of uh, logistical support that the emperor could call upon from the various uh, governors and generals. So the British and French landed uh, opposite um, uh, Peking. They shot up the forts that guarded the river and the approach into Peking. They marched on Peking to force the emperor to sign a new treaty. And... The emperor basically just kept moving back into China ahead of the British forces, being fundamentally carried there by the eunuchs and the mandarins who wanted uh, nothing less than that the emperor should learn that he was actually out num uh, being outgunned by the Western barbarians. So the uh, British attempted to get uh, the emperor to settle down and, and talk peace, uh, or talk surrender, depending on how you want to read it, the uh, party that they had sent ahead under flag of truce was seized by a, a Chinese warlord named Prince Yi. I guess he wasn't a warlord. He was, you know, a fully functional member of the Manchu bureaucracy. But Prince Yi, 
and Prince E had them tossed into prison and uh, tortured, uh, many of them tortured to death. Uh, I think 20 of them were tortured to death, and um, uh, 16 of them survived the torture and were returned to uh, their unit, probably by guys who realized that when the British showed up, they didn't want to be the ones holding the branding iron. And so in order to send a message that the Chinese emperor could, could not avoid hearing, Lord Elgin burned down the Summer Palace. And the Summer Palace was a uh, sort of a, um, a meditative landscape, an enormous uh, uh, constructed landscape of supreme beauty. Uh, it was built uh, primarily by the Qinlung Emperor in the mid-18th century, but had been, you know, started... I think, uh, you know, going all the way back to uh, 1700 and then had been sort of continuously expanded and beautified and improved over the over the years until 1860. And at that point, uh, Lord Elgin set the Summer Palace on fire. It took uh, 3,500 British troops to do it, and it took three days to burn it out. And even then, they didn't get the whole thing. Uh, so the notion was that having done that, the Chinese uh, emperor, you know, would not be able to be uh, uh, to be lied to. That the ma- the mandarins and the eunuchs, you know, when he would show up and say, "Where's my summer palace? What happened to it?" They couldn't <laughs> just say, you know, "Oh, there was a there was a flood or, or whatever." That there was it was literally an inescapable message to the emperor, and it certainly did get the treaty signed, and uh, it did end the war. But it was, of course, a uh, fairly grotesque uh, sin against art. The great irony being, of course, that Lord Elgin's father had been the guy who prized the Elgin marbles off the Parthenon and brought them back to the British Museum. So it sort of ran in the family. Yeah, so unlike Dad, though, he, uh, he rather than just carting it all home, he just decided to set it on fire as an object lesson. There was, of course, some looting. And uh, one of the interesting little details about that that I find very telling is that the uh, the British were in the middle of a... Uh, huge vogue for China, for porcelain. And so they uh, carted off a lot of the porcelain, leaving the uh, Chinese who later came in and surveyed the damage and the wreckage. So they say, well, at least they left behind the uh, 6,000-year-old bronzes, and they just took the dishes. Yeah. Chinese Gordon um, was uh, the the guy who was uh, one of the guys present at the the, the looting and burning. objected that there had been a fairly slipshod job done of looting the place before uh, you burned it down. Um, He's uh, quoted as saying that uh, uh, huge quantities of gold ornaments were burnt as though they were brass, Uh, which is, you know, first of all, news to me that you burned brass, but second of all, it it does speak to a a degree of sort of single-mindedness on the part of Lord Elgin that this was absolutely going to get burned down. All that stuff could be in the British Museum today. Exactly. If only he'd... um, uh, He'd wanted to take, you know, six months or whatever it would have taken to actually properly loot it. And I suspect that uh, he knew his logistics better than I knew it, know his logistics and that that might not have worked. So uh, that's the scenario. Uh, so Time Incorporated uh, sends you to stop that from happening. What do you do? Well, I think that the, I mean, again, the, the problem is that if I stop it from happening in 1860, it's just going to happen again three times later. When have you objected to having serial gigs, Ken? Yes, well, this is true, but still... Um, stopping, um, uh, forcing the Manchu emperor to talk to the British is going to be roughly as easy as for- forcing Mao Zedong not to do something stupid. So I think that the, uh, that this may be one of those missions that I'm going to have to, uh, settle for second best or half a battle. Uh, I think Lord Elgin 
might be able to be talked around. I think that certainly it might be possible to sort of trade the uh, old Summer Palace for the Forbidden City. And that if you suggest to him that rather than burn down the Summer Palace, you simply loot a bunch of the Summer Palace and you blow up the Forbidden City, that that might send a similar message. Now, again, I'm not sure that fits the remit of the um, uh, of the uh, of Time Incorporated, but it does at least let the Summer Palace uh, last until the Boxer Rebellion. Um, and just on a, uh, I think we may be hit with another uh, pronunciation note from our uh, British friends. I've always heard Elgin. It it may be I've always pronounced it Elgin, but then I have not asked the British how it is pronounced. Well, one of us will be mocked shortly. Yes, I'm I'm sure it will. But you know, I didn't loot the Summer Palace, so it's not on me. Um, anyway, the, uh, the, the, the notion that, uh, like I said, Lord Elgin or Elgin is not, uh, he, he's not unaware of his father's reputation as a looter and is therefore probably at least somewhat approachable on, on the question of, uh, sending a different sort of message, uh, to the Chinese government. Again, preventing the palace from being looted involves, uh, causing the British and French to lose the Battle of the Tiku Forts back in 1860, which, given the, um, uh, the imbalance between Britain and, and French naval power and the uh, uh, ability of the, of the Chinese government to do anything useful, I'm not sure that there is a, a big chance of, of that happening. It, it does not strike me as having been a particularly close uh, battle. The Chinese, um, they, they had neither the logistics to support the forts, nor did they have the intention to defend the forts on on a, on a uh, on an ongoing level, they they just don't seem to be able to um, to to really resist uh, the, the the British and the French invasion. And again, going back and altering the Manchu Empire is not going to get the uh, the the Summer Palace saved because if I alter the Manchu Empire such that it has a sensible defense policy, it's not going to waste all of its time building the Summer Palace in the first place. The Summer Palace is an expression of that exact insularity, parochialism, xenophobia, whatever you want to call it, that notion that within China everything is perfect and outside China nothing is worthwhile, uh, despite the fact that the Jesuits designed a, a big chunk of the Summer Palace, um, that I, I think, you know, you, you can't have one without the other. So it comes down to convincing Lord Elgin to devise a different drive-by shooting to convince them to uh, uh, keep up their drug payments. Mm -hmm. And so uh, what uh, line of reasoning do you use on Elgin? Uh, again, I think that with with um, uh, with his lordship, the uh, the only really uh, good in that you would have would be the notion that, uh, given his father's uh, his father's legacy, that it's probably better that he destroys something that is not literally a uh, an art object that is at the very least, you know, a um, uh, a, a a a housing compound. Um, uh, he did consider destroying uh, the Forbidden City instead of the Summer Palace. Um, he was worried that it would um, uh, interfere with the treaty signing, which was being held in the Forbidden City. But I think that if you had simply moved the treaty signing to a different location or, or held it in one building of the Forbidden City and then destroyed the entire rest of the Forbidden City, uh, like the rail car in Compain that uh, the, the French were forced to surrender in, uh, that sort of approach might have been the signal message that he was looking for. I, I think that's the that's the key moment is when he's deciding how to retaliate for uh, the the torture of the envoys because he's going to retaliate for the torture of the envoys because that's the way people did things back in the day. 
Uh, and and still do uh, in many parts of the world. So uh, presumably he's a, a, a man of his, his time and station. He's a fellow who enjoys his port and perhaps mm-hmm. enjoys the refreshing freedom from port-related rituals that comes from drinking port with a, a charming American. Uh, and so that's the uh, pitch you make to him, and that's how, uh, for at least one of its many destructions, you save the old summer palace. Yes, I, th- I think that, um, uh, again, uh, I'm not entirely sure that it is going to... Uh, that it's going to uh, last, but uh, for the 38 years that it does, um, good job. Uh, well, that's what Ripples in the Time Stream are all about. Time Incorporated uh, waits to see how things shake up and then uh, maybe needs to uh, send you back in time for a little uh, blandishment here and there. Right. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Drive Through RPG. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Pelgrane Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Lobby us for congressional earmarks at KenAndRobinTalkAboutStuff.com. Or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>